You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle, uh, for praying, uh, leading us in prayer this morning. Uh, I think we have a picture uh, of, the, uh, of the youth uh, who are away. Uh, they're at the Congregation Youth Retreat, which is in Eagle Bay. I think they're joined by about six other youth groups. Uh, I don't actually know how many kids are at the camp, but I, I think that uh, last year there was about 150. Uh, and so uh, there's a number of kids there. This is our crew. Uh, and so uh, bless them. Bless the leaders. May the Lord have mercy on them all. Um, <laughs> No, they're having a great time. I remember my days in youth ministry, and, uh, uh, and it is where uh, <laughs> lots of things happen. Well, let's just leave it at that. It's where the Lord does good work. I got a text from Chris, uh, in the te- Chris last night as they were kind of dealing with something that had come up with the group, and I'm like, man, you are on the front lines of ministry, and it's a blessed place to be. It's where Jesus calls us into the brokenness of people's lives so that we can minister the hope of Jesus. And that's why we're here. That's why we worship together. If you're new or a visitor, we are not perfect people. We're imperfect people, but we have turned to a perfect God. And somehow he's restoring our lives. Uh, he told um, this person, you're going to hear more about Jesus, a lot about Jesus. So we're just thankful you're here. Uh, we've been, we've been um, considering Jesus' invitation to us. And, and Jesus calls us, each one of us, into the fullness of life with two words. He says, follow me. At the core, disciples follow Jesus. But, but what does that look like and how can we do it together? Well, we've been learning that, that a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, they walk with Jesus, they become like Jesus, and they join what Jesus is doing. And you can do that by walking one of the four pathways that the church is providing over this year. And the four pathways are to walk the pathway of being in a group, a small group, or to be in one of our formation experiences, to walk the pathway on a Sunday morning, as Elliot shared this morning, and, and to walk uh, by using our online resources. But I want to draw your attention to one of these pathways, which is our groups. Perhaps your heart has been stirred over the last couple of weeks as we've been talking about it. Or you know in your head that it's high time you joined a group of other people who are following Jesus together. And so if this is you, I want to invite you to come to the church building over the next three Tuesdays for something we're called Live, Live Connected. And over these three weeks on Tuesdays from 7 to 8.30, we're going to do a few things with you. First, we're going to teach you uh, a way of sharing God's stories in your life, the things that God has done. We, we want to teach you a way of sharing these stories with other people because that's the way that we, that we share our faith with one another. It's the way that we connect deeply with other people. And so we're going to teach you how to do this. Second, we're going to go over what it looks like. What does a small group time look like? What will you do? How will it be led? How, how do things actually work? We're going to show you how small groups are going to work. Third, we're going to introduce you to the, the material that we have, the discipleship material that we want everyone to be participating in this year. And it's discipleship material that is specifically designed to help you walk with Jesus, become like Jesus, and join what Jesus is doing. We want to introduce you to our discipleship material. And fourth, at the end of the three weeks, we're going to help connect you. 
to a small group that fits your life space that will continue to meet in the following weeks uh, beyond those three. And so come on out Tuesday, 7 to 8.30 at the church. Uh, let me encourage you to that. Okay. As I step into the word this morning, we've been considering what it means to follow Jesus. And we've been doing that by looking at Jesus through the lens of people who encountered him uh, as he walked the earth. And so I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to a text in John chapter 4 as we tune into a conversation that Jesus is having with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. And now the text that I'm going to read is, is rather lengthy, and so it might be helpful for you to follow along. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you, or, or if you don't have one there, you can pull it up on your phone. You can type in John 4. And I'm going to be reading verses 4 to 30, and then I'm going to jump to verse 39 and read that verse. Okay, John 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Tune your ear to the voice of the Spirit. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I The one speaking to you, I am he. Just then the disciples returned and and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And then verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, this morning, as we sit under your word, I pray that you would give us your living water. Jesus, where we are empty, fill us. Where we are broken, heal us. I pray this morning that as I preach, that your people would have a vision for your profound love, especially for the overlooked. And that Jesus, as we have a picture of you, you'd lead us into all truth and worship and mission. And so, Lord, make us your church in every sense of the word we pray. Amen. And so, our text this morning, it begins by saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria, which is a really interesting detail because Jesus actually didn't have to go through Samaria, not, not geographically anyways. In fact, most Jews who were traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, which is the route that Jesus is taking here, normally if they're traveling that route, they would never go through Samaria for reasons which will become apparent in just a moment. But the point here is that Jewish travelers avoided Samaria like children avoid anchovies. They want no part of them. And so when the scriptures say that Jesus had to go through Samaria, we need to ask the question, why? Now, a little later, Jesus, after his resurrection, he will describe to his disciples the road that they will take as they join God's redemptive mission in the world. Jesus, at a later date, will say to them, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's in Acts 1.8. Now, notice the movement of God's redemptive mission in the book of Acts. Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, we need to understand that this is precisely the route that Jesus is walking here in John's gospel. In John chapter 3, Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem. 
And after that, he goes to Judea at the beginning of chapter 4. And now we're told just a few verses into chapter 4 that he is now going through Samaria. Jesus must go through Samaria because he is on his redemptive mission to save what is lost and to restore what is broken. It's why he has to go through Samaria. And here, his redemptive mission is focused on a Samaritan woman who is lost and broken at a well. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because of her and because of every lost and broken person. And so Jesus arrives at at this famous well in Samaria, and, and, and it's about noon. And his disciples, they go off into town to get some lunch, and and Jesus takes a seat because he's tired. Then a Samaritan woman comes, and, and she comes to draw water from the well. And when she does, Jesus asks her the question. He says, will you give me a drink? And the request we can kind of see in the text, it, it comes as a complete surprise to her, scandalous even. Look at verse 9. She responds saying, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And now there are two things going on here. First, the woman's surprised because in the first century, Jews didn't speak with Samaritans. There was this ethnic divide between the two of them, something that was rooted in in a deep and conflicted history. They didn't like one another at all. You see, at one point in history, at one point in time, both Jews who lived in the south and Samaritans who lived in the north, they were both considered God's people. But during the exile, the Samaritans in the north were overtaken by the wicked Assyrians. And in time, both the Samaritans' blood and their religion got mixed up. Samaritans and Assyrians, they intermarried, and and their religions became syncretized. And so in the eyes of Jews, the, the Samaritans were impure, both in their pedigree and in their theology. In effect, they were no longer God's holy people. They were outsiders. And so this woman's surprised because a Jew is speaking to a Gentile, uh, to, to a Samaritan. It simply wouldn't have happened. But secondly, she's surprised because this is a man who wouldn't normally engage a woman in public like this. I mean, I've, I've shared before uh, how the first century world was, was really quite unkind to, 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 to women. They weren't treated as equals. And so the woman is surprised that that Jesus jumps over two barriers here, both an ethnic barrier and a gender barrier, in order to ask her for a drink. And now, we might just think that this is a detail that is interesting in the story, but I want to impress upon you it's a detail we cannot miss because it's the reason Jesus has to go through Samaria. Because in the kingdom that Jesus comes announcing, in the kingdom of God, there are no divisions of hate and inequality. The kingdom of God tears down the walls of division that degrade human beings, divisions like racism and sexism 
Presently at the well, Jesus is tearing down these barriers by asking this woman for a drink. But later at the cross, he'll tear them down by giving up his life. You see, the gospel isn't simply the good news that that Jesus tears the veil that separates us from God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus tears down every wall that separates us from other people. It's the gospel. It's good news. It's news that the world needs to hear. You see, when, when we follow Jesus into God's kingdom, there are no racist walls keeping different ethnicities from living at peace and with, uh, from loving one another. And in God's kingdom, there are no walls keeping women and men from living as respected equals. With Jesus' simple request, will you give me a drink? We're given a window into God's redemptive mission. We're given a window into why he came, what he hopes to accomplish. This is why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because he will not leave his world languishing with walls that, that, that cause inhumane barriers between people. It's why he had to go through Samaria. But but God's redemption, it it, it actually reaches even deeper into this woman's life. The text says it was about noon in verse 6. It was about noon when she came to the well. And now this is an important detail. And if you've ever heard anything about this story, you, you probably know this one. It's important because noon is the wrong time to draw water from a well in first century Palestine. It was the hottest time of the day. Women drew water in the evening when it was cooler. But notice also that she's all alone, which is odd because women typically go to draw water together. Drawing water was as much social as it was practical. And there's one more detail that that we need literally to dig in order to see because archaeology has uncovered other wells (laughs) that are much closer to this woman's town than the one she's at, than Jacob's well. There were wells much closer. And so we're left wondering, why does this woman come to this well far from her town, all alone in the heat of the day? Well, verses 17 and 18 tell us she has a history. Multiple husbands, And we're told that the man that she's with now isn't her husband, and presumably it's probably someone else's husband. You see, she couldn't go to the other wells because at the other wells, the other women were whispering about her. Her reputation went before her. She was an outcast, an outsider. And so she went every day to the furthest well when no one else would be around. The text doesn't tell us much about her past, other than the number of men in her life. But let's be clear, we we don't know the story behind her story. I mean, we all have a story behind our story, right? And, And we don't know the story behind this woman's story. Maybe she went through husbands because they divorced her. 
I mean, in the first century, there are records of, of men were allowed to divorce their wives simply for burning the dinner. Wow. Or maybe these men died. Or maybe these men were unfaithful to her, or she was unfaithful to them. We don't know the trauma that this woman may have faced or the mistakes that she may have made, but we can be sure that there were both. There's always both. Sins committed and sins committed against us. And we all have stories like that. The story behind the story. The story of our own brokenness. The reason we, we turn to things that, that never satisfy, whether it's our own sin or sin committed against us, we have both. And for the woman at the well, her, her story, the story behind the story, it, it, it made her an outsider. It made her feel like she didn't belong. It, it made her feel a sense of shame and emptiness, that, that she was overlooked. And we simply can't miss this because she is the reason Jesus had to come through Samaria. Presently, she is the focal point of God's redemptive mission because, mark this, because God doesn't leave people to waste away in their brokenness. He scours the earth for the outsiders. He searches it for the empty and the overlooked. He, he, he surveys the earth to find those who languish under shame and guilt because he is not content to leave his beloved creation crushed under their weight. It's why he has to go through Samaria. And it's why he has to go through our hearts as well. I can imagine that on those long trips to the well that this woman would contemplate her life, that she'd think about her, her mistakes, her past heartaches, her regret. It was a journey to the well, and I'm sure that she would be contemplating her own isolation. And you see, the well is a metaphor for life. It was a literal well, to be sure, but, but I can only imagine on her journey to the well, the well represented something to her about her life, about her situation. The well is a metaphor for life. And God actually uses this metaphor with the prophet Jeremiah when, when he says this. He says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The well is a metaphor for our life. And church, we need to understand that all of us have been created with, with a well to contain the living water, which is the life of God, the presence of God, the Spirit of God. But the problem is we often fill the well of our lives with, with things that cannot satisfy us, that simply don't satisfy our soul. Think about the woman's life for a moment. Five husbands. And the one that she's with right now is not her husband. And we can ask, well, what is she filling her life with? How is she filling the void? 
Well, it's obvious with relationships. And now, presently, in the arms of a man who isn't her husband. And we all do that kind of thing. We were made to contain the living water of God. But we fill our lives with things that simply can't satisfy the thirst in our soul. It's why all the stuff that we buy, all the things that we accumulate, it's why that stuff doesn't bring us lasting joy. Right, the new iPhone or the new car and the smell that you have when you're in there, it's amazing. <laughs> the sweater, it makes you feel good for a time, but before long it wastes away and we're thirsty again. It's the same with the likes and the views and the, and the shares on social media. We, we chase after them because they satisfy our need for acceptance or to feel important or, or, or seen. And, and they satisfy us in the moment, but before long, we're thirsty for more. And it's a thirst we cannot quench. And it's why filling our well with drink or, or sex or cosmetics only gives you something temporary. It's a, a sip of satisfaction that will need to, to be obsessively consumed over and over and over again. And now let me be clear, these things aren't, aren't, aren't bad in and of themselves. <laughs> but we go wrong when we think these things can satisfy the deep longing of our heart. We're wrong when we think that these are, are the things that, that human beings were meant to be filled with to make us true human beings. They're not. Only the living water of God can do that. The well of your life was made to contain one kind of water, and only one, the living water of God. And unless your life is filled with that water, you will always be thirsty. You'll always be searching for something that satisfies your soul. C.S. Lewis has said, in The Problem of Pain, he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then most, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. <laughs> Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And the real thing is the living water of God. And so we all need to ask ourselves, what are you filling the well of your life with? Where are you drawing your sense of acceptance from or your sense of belonging or your sense of joy from? You know, I want to acknowledge this morning that there are some people here today who are really searching. And I mean honestly searching for something to settle their souls. That They, they feel like something's off and you're looking to settle your soul. And it has me thinking about people I know People I would call friends who struggle with their own sexuality and their own sense of identity. Friends who feel like the body that they were given doesn't fit who they think they are. Like you need to make some kind of change to your body to fill the angst you feel inside. And to these friends, I, I want to encourage you today. And I want 
to say to you that Jesus is living water for your soul. He's the water your well was designed to hold. And he can satisfy your soul in a way that nothing can. And you need to know that you, along with the rest of us, are the reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because he sees the longing of your heart. And he wants to fill it. He wants to fill it. He wants you to know his living water. And so Jesus turns to the woman at the well. And he turns to all of us whose well is dry and broken, and he says these words. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this well water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, you and I were made for God's living water, and it's the only water that satisfies and sustains us. And it's why Jesus has come into your life, to give you his water. And so the question that, that, that we're faced with this morning is, is how do we receive it? <laughs> Having heard Jesus' invitation to drink, how do we receive the living water that satisfies? How do we metaphorically drink from Jesus as well? Jesus tells the woman that all she needs to do is, mark this, all she needs to do is ask. Verse 10, Jesus says, if you would ask for it, I would give it. That's it. If you would ask for it, I would give it. Is it really that easy, Jesus? If we ask for living water, the water that heals hearts and restores dignity, the water that quenches our thirst for belonging and, and acceptance and joy, if we simply ask, you will give us this water? I mean, it seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Is it really that easy, Jesus? The answer is yes. Yes. We actually see it in the woman's life. The moment she asks for the living water, the living water begins to flow. Look at the text. Verse 15. The woman said to him, to Jesus, Sir, give me this water. And then we see the, the water starting to flow in verse 16. The very next thing, she asks for the water. Then Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. At first, it sounds like Jesus is changing the subject, right? These things don't seem to connect. Is this really the living water flowing? Uh, but Jesus isn't changing the subject. He is giving her the living water. You see, when the living water flows, it, it often goes straight to your painful or shameful past because that's precisely where you need the water the most. You see how this works? We wish it wasn't so. 
We wish we would just ask God to enter our lives and he would flip the switch and he'd make us happy and healthy and wealthy, right? We wish that's the way it worked. But that's not how his restorative mission works at all. When the living water flows, it clears away the facade. It clears away uh, the, the, the masks and it exposes what's really there, the truth. And the living water does this. It exposes the truth, not to shame us, but to heal us so that we might honestly face what's there so that God might deal with and address what's really there. When the living water flows, God reveals what we most need to see. And most often, it's our sin or our shame and our need for healing. This is what happens with the woman. She asks, and the water flows. And so, church, would we have the courage simply to ask and let the water flow where it will? But mark this. The water doesn't stop there in our story. It continues to flow. After Jesus addresses the woman's brokenness, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is, on, uh, is in Jerusalem. And now, again, some people think that now she is changing the subject, that in the flow of the story, she doesn't want to talk about her shame anymore with some stranger uh, at a well, and so she changes the subject to talk about worship and a difference between Jews and Samaritans. But I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think the living water is flowing. You see, her mind turns to the place of worship, the temple. Her mind turns to the one place that people would go to be made right with God. Faced with the shame of her life, she begins to turn back to God, and she wonders, where can I go to be made right with God again? Do I go to the mountain in Jerusalem or, or to this mountain where we worship, Mount Gerizim? Do I go to this mountain or that mountain, Jesus? And Jesus answers, you go to neither. Why? Because the temple has come to her. God's presence-containing tabernacle is standing right in front of her very face. And like the temple we read about in Ezekiel 47 and the temple in Revelation 22, the living water is flowing straight out of himself and into the world. And the woman, she has seen the truth of her past, and now she turns her heart to God because what's left to do when you encounter Christ but put up your hands and worship? That's what happens when the living water flows. The truth is revealed, and all those who drink lift their hands in adoration, in worship of the one who holds the keys to life, the one who heals a broken heart, the one who restores a weary soul. It's worship. It's where the living water flows. But the living water doesn't even stop there in our story because the water doesn't stop until it's finished its redemptive work. Look, the text says, at this point in the story, the woman realizes who Jesus is. He's not simply a prophet. He's the Messiah, God's anointed one who will sort out humanity's mess. So 
She's so excited when she comes to the realization that the one who's speaking right into her heart isn't simply some stranger, isn't simply some prophet, but he is the Messiah. And she's so excited that she drops her water jar. She leaves it there. The very reason she came, she leaves her water jar and runs back to the town in order to tell everyone about him, about the Messiah who stepped over ethnic divisions and gender divisions and moral divisions to give her living water. The Messiah who didn't see a Samaritan outsider marked with shame, but saw a woman in need of healing and forgiveness and acceptance. The Messiah who asked for a drink from her well, but ended up giving her one from his, the well of God. You see, Jesus changed the trajectory of this woman's story. And she wanted others to know what he could do for them. Come see this Jesus for yourself. Come drink for yourself. You see, the living water was flowing not simply in her, but through her to others in her city. And this is what the living water does, church. It's why his water is so satisfying to the soul. It's why he had to go through Samaria and through every one of our hearts. For when the living water flows, we see the truth about who we are and the truth about who God is and how he tends to our brokenness in our sin. And when the living water flows, we worship in spirit and in truth. And when the living water flows... We are empowered to carry that life-giving water to others who need it. Church, will you come and drink from the fount that only Jesus can provide? Whether it's for your first time or for your hundredth time, will you drink the living water? You simply need to ask for it. It's that simple. Because Jesus gives freely to all who ask. Let's pray. Jesus, in a way that no words can express, you hold the keys to life. You are the solution to every problem. You are the solution to every heartache, every disappointment, every broken moment, every trauma, every pain, every tear. Jesus, you are the solution. And you offer us a drink this morning. And Jesus, I just want to be honest that There's a part of me that feels like standing up here and saying that all we need to do is ask and then you come into our life and and, and somehow you do something that sets us right again. Lord, Lord, there's a fear in me that in saying these things (laughs) that you won't do it. But Jesus, that is the perspective of someone who doesn't see the picture. The whole picture. 
because Jesus, when we ask, the power of God is always that you act. And so, Jesus, I pray this morning for those who maybe feel jaded, for for those who feel like your power is, is no longer part of their life, I pray that as they have the courage to ask, that you'd fill them afresh with the living water of God and you'd satisfy their soul in a way that only you can and that you would bring a river of healing and peace and joy back to all who ask. Jesus, do what only you can do, we pray. Amen.